In the last class, the portion which we were studying, we will continue from there. So as Master was indicating that it's not mere belief that constitutes spirituality. We have to endeavor as in our scriptures, it has been insisted again and again, highlighted again and again that we have to practice. There has to be some sadhana which entails into, which results in realization and until our spiritual practices result in realization, mere make-belief in no way can enter in, in any sort of spiritual conviction. So what the master was in just speaking to the disciples, you see one must practice spiritual discipline to understand this correctly. Suppose there are treasures in a room. If you want to see them and lay hold of them, you must take the trouble to get the key and unlock the door. After that, you must take the treasures out. But suppose the room is locked and standing outside the door, you say to yourself, here I have opened the door. Now I have broken the lock of the chest. Now I have taken out the treasure. Such brooding near the door will not enable you to achieve anything. So, the mere imagination is of no avail unless it leads to realization that all the spiritual truths which we speak of, that I am the Atman, I am the Brahman, at present it is a mere belief that I have read the, this spiritual dictums in the scripture, I have heard it from my Guru, and I have faith in their words, but till I myself have gone to the realization, it is a mere belief. And as long as it is a belief, it's not in any way true knowledge. The only, the only sign of knowledge is realization. Unless we have realized anything, there cannot be any knowledge. As with that example, which we give again and again, as if you have not tested the mango. However, I may try to describe you the taste of mango. It will be mere words. Those words, with those words, you may imagine something. But that imagination in no way is going to uh, conform to the real taste of mango. So it's all vikalpa, as in the Yoga Sutra, they use the term vikalpa. What's that? Shabda, jnana, anupati, vastu, shunya, vikalpa. That what I'm thinking of, it has no corresponding reality. It has no corresponding reality outside. The word in no way corresponds to the reality, the knowledge which comes from that word. When I speak out a word, from that word corresponds to some knowledge, but that knowledge in no way corresponds to some reality. So that is called vikalpa. Then the, the vikalpa can result in realization if we take those words of the scriptures and of the spiritual teacher as real and then proceed as per the path which has been chalked out, our, as per the path chalked out by our spiritual tradition. 
then only it can take us to the realization. And unless we have gone to the realization, these mere words are just make-believe. In no way it is going to help us in our spiritual journey. So that's what we were discussing in the last class. So now the master continues his discussion. What he says, the jnanis think of God without form. They don't accept the divine incarnation. Praising Sri Krishna, Arjuna said, Thou art Brahman Absolute. Sri Krishna replied, Follow me and you will know whether or not I am Brahman Absolute. So saying, Sri Krishna led Arjuna to a certain place and asked him what he saw there. I see a huge tree, said Arjuna. And on it, I notice fruits hanging like clusters of blackberries. Then Krishna said to Arjuna, come nearer and you will find that these are not clusters of blackberries, but clusters of innumerable Krishnas like me hanging from the tree. In other words, divine incarnation without number appear and disappear on the tree of the absolute Brahman. So <clears throat> this is something very significant. What the master is saying that the jnanis think of God without form, they don't accept the divine incarnation. And after saying that, he's relating to some incident in the life of Krishna and Arjuna, where Arjuna proclaims that Krishna is the Brahman absolute. And on, as a response to that, Krishna takes Arjuna to some tree where innumerable blackberries are there, ripened blackberries are there. And he asks Arjuna to go near and see, and he finds that it's actually not blackberries, it is all innumerable Krishnas, like just of the same form of his Sakha, Krishna, to indicate to the fact that incarnations are innumerable. So here, what's the idea actually? The idea is, as per Advaita, there is no special incarnation of the divinity. That in Advaita Vedanta, the idea is the entire universe is the projection of the consciousness of Brahman. What I see as this universe of name and form is a mere appearance. It's actually the Brahman and Brahman alone. So everything becomes the manifestation of the divine. It is, they don't believe in any specific manifestation of the divine. So the idea is just to highlight the idea that whatever we see is an incarnation. They're all Krishnas. If we try to get rid of the attributes, which are the mere projection of the senses, the thing in essence is Brahman and Brahman alone. I cannot deny the existence. There is something called existence, but what it is, I can never know. There the scripture asserts that it is the Brahman and Brahman alone. There's a subtle difference between Buddhism and the concepts of Vedanta. In Buddhism, they go for the idea, this idea is subjective idealism, that the world is not there at all. It's the mind and the senses which is projecting the universe. It's not there at all. It's a mind, it is the mind and the senses which is projecting the universe. In Vedanta, they say that there is something. It's not mere imagination. It is, there is something outside, but I can never know what it is. The only thing which I can be assured of is existence, the isness, the everything is. But what it is, I can never know. The moment I try to know it, it is a, it will be get it will get limited by my mind and my senses. That example which we give again and again, that when I see the red flower, the redness is the projection of the mind and the senses. The fragrance is the projection of the mind and the senses. Something is there outside which is like a suggestion there outside. My senses, my mind gets stimulated by it to throw all those, the redness, the fragrance and everything is thrown by the mind. So they limit this, all those things are limiting the essence of each and everything. 
So what I cannot deny is the isness. There is something. It is not mere imagination. But what it is, I can never know. Whenever I try to know it, is the mind and the senses are projecting. And it appears as that object of name and form. If that be so, then what the thing which we cannot deny is the existence. That existence is appearing as the, in the form of varied names and forms. And these varied names and forms in that way is the innumerable incarnation of the divine. There is no specific incarnation of the divine. That's what Sri Ramakrishna is indicating while indicating the opinion, the, uh, the way, the, the, the perspective of the Gyanis, the way they look at the reality. So this universe of name and form is the projection of Brahman. So everything is Brahman. Sarvam Khalvidam Brahma. So one has to deny the attributes to go beyond all limiting adjuncts to realize the absolute existence behind the name and form. After saying that, Sri Ramakrishna is now giving the example of Kavir Das. Kavir Das was strongly inclined to the formless God. At the mention of Krishna's name, he would say, why should I worship him? The gopis would clap their hands while he performed a monkey dance. <laughs> so if you don't believe in the divine incarnation, then all the stories of God's lila, the sport, they all become a mere worldly uh, way of relating to each other. As there's a very nice uh, sutras in Narada Bhakti Sutra. I will just relate to few of the sutras and then we will try to relate to this words of Sri Ramakrishna when he's relating Kavir, the words of Kavir. That's what are those Narada Bhakti Sutras are. That the 19th Sutra of the Narada Bhakti Sutra, they say that first Narada is defining what is Bhakti. Narada tu, as per Narada, what it is? Tat arpita akhila acharata vismarane parama vyakulata iti. That you have reached a state of devotion where you're, you cannot remain a single moment of life without thinking of the divine. Whatever you do, you offer it to the divine by constantly thinking of the divine and you are offering it to the divine. That's being indicated by the word tat aripita, akhila, whatever you are doing, acharata, akhila acharata, whatever you are doing, everything is an act of an offering to the divine. You're offering it to the divine. And if somehow there's a little forgetfulness. Vismarane parama vyakulata iti. If you are forgetful even for a little, you feel tremendous that pangs of separation. Parama vyakulata. Immediately you feel that you are just the way we feel when we are suffocating, where there is no year. So God has become just like air, just like water, without which we cannot live. So that's his condition. After saying that, the next uh, sutra, the example, they give the example. What's the example? Yatha Vraja Gopikana. Just as the gopis, the Krishnas, this, the, the handmaids of the Krishna, the gopis of Vrindavan, they are the example, as Sri Ramakrishna is also indicating. After that, what they say, in the sutra is the next sutra that is very important that if we understand then we can relate to these words of Ramakrishna when he is relating Kavirdas. What he is saying Tatrapi na mahatmya jnana vismriti apavada that even when the gopis who were relating to the divine as if he is the lover even for a moment they never forget the the jnana, that's what is the Mahatma Jnana Vismriti, that he is actually the divine. He is not an ordinary human being of flesh and bones. He has incarnated, God has incarnated, and he is sporting with us. This idea is always there in the background of their mind. If that was not there, the next sutra says a very interesting thing. Tat vihinam jaranam eva. Without that, it is something like illicit love. Because the gopis were all married. They left their hearth and home to meet Sri Krishna. So it becomes something like an illicit love. 
which is not accepted by the society. So it is a divine life. Why? Because they are never forgetful of the divine descent. It is a God who has descended as Krishna. And now in Advaita, in, as per the Jnana Marga is concerned, where you don't believe in the fact that God has descended, he has descended, then in their eyes, from their perspective, it's just a worldly love. So that's why Kavirdas being a Jnani is vehemently criticizing the Bhagavata Lila by saying what? As the mention of Krishna's name, he would say, at, at the mention of Krishna's name, Kavirdas would say, why should I worship him? The gopis would clap their hands while he performed a monkey dance. So it is just like any other normal human behavior. So that's what he's indicating. Because being a jnani, the idea of the divine incarnation is not there. And that's what even the Bhakti Shastra they say. Unless you see the divine in the object of your love, it is an ordinary love. It's no more uh, the divine love. So that's what is being again and again stressed in our scripture. What is the thing from here we can take that even in our meditation that we should always remember that the one whom I am meditating upon it's not like any other worldly connection. He is the divine who has descended in this form. And then only that can be a true uh, what you say, a worship, a true meditation. Because otherwise, uh, it becomes just like an ordinary uh, ordinary human bond. Where when I die, and there's a separation, I have, I have a sense of pangs of separation. But when you are always thinking of the divine, as a, of its divine origin, the object of your love, as something divine, then immediately the idea comes what? as has been spoken of in the Bible, worship the spirit by the spirit. That the object of my love is unlimited. He was, he is, he will be. The real essence of my being, this physical existence is limited. I was born at a certain point of time, I'm going to die at a certain point of time. But the real me is eternal. This real eternal me is in eternal association with the divine. This thought alone can help us transcend all the limitations of life, all the suffering. Whenever suffering comes, we can think it's something trivial. It's just going to pass. It's just a flow. It in no way can affect the real me, which is always in eternal association with the divine. So that way you understand that when I am meditating, unless I have the idea of its divine origin, it becomes a ordinary love. So though these words are, uh, are words of criticism, but it do indicate a very vital point in our spiritual journey, that the divine incarnation has to be taken always in its true aspect. You will find in the Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavan himself has indicated that most of the people that take me to be ordinary human being, and that way they can never benefit from the, their association with me, so this is, they don't know my param bhava, my real state. They think avajananti mang mura, the murha, those are deluded. They think to be an ordinary human being. So if you take him to be ordinary human being, then all the association with the divine becomes just like any other worldly association. So you always have to be uh, aware of its divine origin. So in as for the Jnani, as they don't uh, believe in the divine incarnation, so they take this love as just like any other ordinary life. From that criticism, even a devotee should learn instead of hating the Jnani. They should immediately take it in a subjective way that what he's saying is correct. That if I don't take the incarnation's divine origin, then it becomes an ordinary love. So that way, Gyani, through his criticism, can of course help a Bhakta. Immediately, the Bhakta will be aware of the fact that always I have to think of the incarnation as of divine origin. So after saying that, with a smile, what the Master now says, but I accept God with form when I am in the company of people who believe 
in that ideal and all i also believe with those who believe in the formless god so this is the uniqueness of ramakrishna so if you boil down the spiritual journey of any tradition that meditation some form of meditation is there in any spiritual tradition the meditation leading to realization so there are so many paths but if i boil down all the paths at last it will come to what that there can be only two types of meditation one is something which is now very very common it it we all attribute it to be uh, the to have originated from buddhism which is known as mindfulness but we forget that it is just almost the meditation uh, which is we call mindfulness is just like the meditation in the vedanta tradition where we think of the essence of my being as the witness as the shakshi chaitanya so there also the same idea that i am the shakshi everything is going on i am just observing without getting identified with it so that is one way of meditation that i am the shakshi the witness i am observing but i am in no way identified with them that's one way and another is the focus that focus again can be of two types it can be formless that i am the atman i am the brahman or even it can be all the dualistic religion which doesn't believe in the form of god like the abrahamic religions but the god is full of qualities but he has no form so meditation can be on that formless aspect or it can be on the idea that i am the brahman i am the atman so though it is a focus but it is also formless and the third is the focus with form now these are the three uh, apart from this you can we can never think of any other type of meditation either it is mindfulness or focus and that focus can be of two type that focus can be on the formless aspect which in in the advaita vedanta where one thinks himself as the conscious principle and in other uh, the dualistic religions the abrahamic religions they think not themselves as the divine the divine is something separate from them but the divine is formless it has attributes so there also a focus is there though it is formless and the third which also is a focus means the focus has two types one is a formless and another with form like in hinduism we find that the concept of ishta the god with form do incarnate and i believe in that form that god god has incarnated through that form and i meditate on that now the what's the realization which entails through all these types of meditation the same thing you will find what happens that those who are uh, resorting to that witness self shakshi chaitanya for them what happens as we discuss all the time that my mind is the pampered mind it has so many different mental modules all are trying to get take my get my attention that's what we find the mind is always jumping from one thought to another thought so many desires in the form of mental modules is always always wants to be pampered when i am the witness i am observing them i am not nurturing them but you can go on jumping i won't feed you anymore i am just observing then what happens they start falling off gradually that example which we give again and again you feed the birds every day they are nurtured because you are feeding and you decide you won't feed anymore they come but you are you have taken the resolution i won't feed them anymore so what will happen two days three days four days they may come back but at last they get the feedback that we are not going to be fed they stop coming then what happens in buddhism that's the way of meditation where you are at last left with that ego which is not in any way attached to any desire the moment the ego is not attached to any desire a wonderful thing happens your consciousness gets broadened it is a desire which all the desires which limits our consciousness you will find that in the morning when you have you have to go to your work a lot of assignments are there you have your mind is restricted only to what you are doing only when you are a bit relaxed you are sitting the works immediately you have no work to do 
you start thinking of the past, you start thinking of the future. Your mind is as if enveloping a broader spectrum. So even in Buddhism, you will find that when you get established in the Shakshi Chaitanya, and you are not allowing the mind to be distracted, to be identified with any of those so-called desires in the form of innumerable mental modules, then the mind, all the bias falls off and it broadens. If you have read the life of Buddha, you will find just before realization, what happened? He remembered all the past births. The Jati Smaratya comes back. As the mind is not engaged with the immediate needs or immediate desires, it has broadened. It goes to the past. And when it sees the past, that how many innumerable births, lives we have wasted, as Swami Vivekananda used to say, so many lives we have wasted. How are you wasted? We took the worldly way of life as the be-all and end-all of our existence. Our ambition to have to be rich, to have wealth, to have position. With that, we started our life. We got everything. Nature gave us everything at a certain point of time. And then with old age, decay, death came. Everything nature took away. What we got? Nothing. We came as a pauper. We ended up as a pauper. And that's what we was repeating again and again. And this, from the retrospect, you see that how many lives we have wasted. From that, that para vairagya comes. Supreme detachment. Where when that comes, that the last bit of ego, which has already been freed from all the mental modules, that falls off. Taking you to the realization, which is, of course, form- formless. The amness, which has no limit, as Buddha, when he went to the realization, very poetically it is mentioned that they don't believe in God, but they say Buddha felt what he felt. His head is touching the Himalayas. His feet is touching the ocean. His hands are being, uh, what you say, that uh, enveloping the entire universe. This is the language. The same thing in Advaita we say that you feel that amnesty is no more local. It has become something all pervading. It, it is something beyond time space causation. So that, of course, is some, a realization which has nothing to do with form. So that's what the mindfulness can take you. Now let us come to the all the uh, this meditations where focus is there. When I'm meditating on the idea Aham Brahmasmi, what's the idea that I am Brahma? Or you believe, or you believe in some dualistic religion where you don't believe in the form of God, but the idea is that God is I am, and that relation is eternal. So this type of idea Aham Brahma, or I am in internal association with the divine, which is unlimited. That idea itself starts creating a new mental module, which is which is like acts like a scarecrow for all other mental modules, because all other mental modules are conditioned by their limited ego. This new mental module is something which is designed with the idea that I am not this limited ego. So this is as if contending pratipaksha of all the mental modules. So here also the same thing happens. That if I have to be sitting, I have to be just sitting and not pampering all the birds. That way the birds go off. Otherwise, I can do another thing. That I can just keep a scarecrow. All the birds won't come. So this idea, Aham Brahmasmi, or all the meditation on the divinity, with uh, this, uh, with the idea that I am infinite, by the God is something beyond. Uh, beyond all the limitation of time and our relation is eternal. So these mental module helps you to get rid of again, all the modules. And again, it takes you at last the ego also falls off to take you to the realization, ultimate realization, which is formless. So now I understand that yes, whether it is Sakshi Chaitanya or focus where we have nothing to do with form, it takes us to the formless aspect. But you may ask that how those who are meditating with the form, they can go to the formless aspect. They also go to the same realization, but still they adhere to the form. How? That that example which we give again and again, that when we are meditating on a form, what I am doing, it's I'm imagining a form. I'm visualizing a form. 
and I am repeating that I am just through my name, Nama Rupa, I am meditating. It's a very effective way of meditation. Why? That all our thoughts has two components, Nama and Rupa. Whenever I am just the mother is thinking of the child, how the, what the thought comes, the name of the child, and along with that, a visualization. All our thought has these two components, name and form. So if you think of God with form, the meditation can be highly effective. Because when I am meditating on a God with name and form, I am taking care of both the aspects of my thought, both the components of my thought, name and form. Otherwise, what happens sometimes our meditation becomes very mechanical. Though I am trying to focus on the formless aspect of the divine through some name, name is there. In any dualistic religion, the name is there. But as you are not visualizing any form, that that aspect of the mind, that, that as we told, the thought has two components. Your mind is now free to visualize anything. So you will find, you, just those who meditate, you will find it's a very common thing that though I am repeating something, the visualization, has, the, the, the visualization aspect of the mind has gone uh, is totally, uh, has, has lost. It has gone astray. It is thinking so many things and your meditation can become something mechanical. The mind is just thinking a lot of things. You are mumbling something. But now if you try to meditate with the form, then you have taken care of that, that rupa aspect of your thought also, the name and form both. And this can contend with the distraction in a much better way. This is the idea I just, Swami Vivekananda in one of his lectures have indicated. So when you're doing that, but at last I'm meditating on a form, what it has to do with my ultimate spiritual realization. So this is the idea of what happens when I'm meditating with the form where the mind is really, but really focused everything else starts falling off. As your mind has entered into a state of flow, it is extremely focused. We'll find when my mind is focused, all distraction starts falling off. First, I forget about the external things. If anyone calls me, I cannot hear because my mind is so focused. The sound is entering the ear, but it doesn't get connected with the mind because the mind is focused in something else. So that falls off. My hunger, thirst, need to sleep, they start falling off. But at last, the thing which still remains is a portion of my mind with which my ego is kept intact. I know I am this limited individual being who is meditating on the divine with such and such form. When the meditation becomes still more intense, this residual ego, that ego with which the mind is connected, which is very difficult to get rid of, the mind even that, uh, that ego also is being eradicated. The total mind gets focused on the object of meditation, even getting rid of the ego. And that's what in our scripture has been spoken of as Samadhi. What Samadhi? Where the Triputi Bheda happens. The triad of Dhyana, Dhyata, Dhyaya. That when I'm meditating, how intense my meditation may be, I know I am meditating. I am the Dhyata. I am the one who is meditator, the God the, with form whom I am meditating upon is the object of meditation, is the dhyaya. And meditation is the process which is connecting these two. This idea remains, but the moment that ego falls off, immediately you become as if one with the object of meditation. And then what happens? You go to the realization, though you are seeing a form, but that takes you to the realization that this form is all pervading. As Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's words are very important in this aspect. Jatra jatra netra pare tatra tatra krishna sphure. That wherever my eye falls, I see Krishna alone. That this, when the Triputi Bheda happens, this form on which you are meditating, that appears to be the only thing in the universe. Everywhere it, it is the same form which is pervading the entire creation. But again, the same idea of non-locality comes, but through form. Through form it comes, but that realization is as valid, as effective as the formless aspect. Why? 
but the ego has fallen off. That's the main thing. When, so what's in the words of Sri Ramakrishna is very important that when you are meditating on a form, what you are doing, you are as if chiseling a particular form in the wall of ego. Your imagination is just like the chiseling. When the chiseling is complete, the hole is formed and you peep through the hole. You see that infinite expanse. But as you're seeing through the hole of the form in which you're meditating, you get a conviction that this form is infinite. The one who is meditating uh, in the form of Krishna, he thinks Krishna is infinite. The one who meditates on Rama, he thinks Rama is infinite. Once he goes to the realization, not before that. So what's the, uh, the from this discussion, we can come to the conclusion that the ultimate realization has two components. One is ego falls off. And another thing is, in some way or other, we have a sense of non-locality. That this, the ultimate reality is non-local. It is not this limited existence. So both are taking me to the same realization. So that's why now you will find that it's a very simple word, what he's saying. But Sri Ramakrishna is as if uh, from his own realization has came to this conclusion that I accept God with form when I'm in the company of the people who believe in that ideal. And I also agree with those who believe in that formless God because Sri Ramakrishna is the one who has practiced all the path and came to the conclusion that all this path takes to that same realization. The ego falls off and you find that that amnes is something non-local. It has lost its locality. So that's Non-dual experience is something which is common to all the spiritual traditions. So after that, what Sri Ramakrishna is saying, that aim smiling. Now very interesting, very interesting. After hearing these words, that when I am with the one who believe in form, I also agree with them. And those who don't believe in the, in, believe in the formless aspect, I also agree with those. Hearing these words, what aim says is very something significant. He says, you are as infinite as he of whom we have been talking. Truly, no one can fathom your depth. Hearing this, what Sri Ramakrishna says is very important. Important, Master smiling, ah, I see you have found it out. Let me tell you one thing. One should follow various paths. So just see what we were discussing that will conform to the Ramakrishna's words. One should follow various paths. One should practice each creed for a time. And then what he's saying is very important again. In a game of satranj, a piece cannot reach the center square until it completes the circle. But once in a square, it cannot be overtaken by any other piece. Means whatever practice you have adopted, that is sufficient. That can take you to that ultimate square. But unless you have reached that square, you stop this practice and start another. That's of no avail. So all the practice at last can take you there. Sri Ramakrishna through his spiritual life have done that. All that all paths are true. When we say to the people, many say, oh, I, I know there are many other saints who have said it. Yes, they have said it. But we will never find a single life where they practiced and went to that realization through all those paths. Believing is one thing, and to have the conviction, true realization is one thing. And that's what Sri Ramakrishna is indicating. We have found it out. And then he's saying that one should follow the various paths to go to that realization, what you told. But one should again remember, it's not just tidbits. Today I practice this, tomorrow and that, and just say that I believe in the universal, that universality of all the religions. Not that the thing. One should practice each creed for a time. And then he has to go to the ultimate realization and that he's indicating in that uh, in through some uh, aphorisms what he's saying in a game of satranj some game like chess not exactly chess it's something like ludo uh, many don't know that in india we know there the the you know the the, uh, the dice has to go go around the entire board and at last it reaches the uh, final square when it is there the dice can no more, no more be destroyed by any other, other dice. 
when i am playing the other uh, other tokens may destroy my token but when it goes to the final square no one can destroy me so what is the idea that unless you have reached the realization you are vulnerable because your spirituality is just based on your belief it has not taken you to the ultimate realization but once you have reached there the final square now you are safe now you can again start the game with some different different other others tokens you can take other token again you can start the game but again you have to complete to be uh, that uh, that established in that conviction and then only you can know that all the paths are true and you can practice any and it can lead you to that ultimate realization so that's what so one may follow any path but whatever path one follow one must go to the realization only then that that one can think uh, this of practicing some other path otherwise it is just mere curious mongering sometimes when we read the gospel we feel that ramakrishna is as if whatever thought is coming his thinking one thought has no link with the other but if that's why we say that you have to contemplate deeply his he he has certain sequence in his thoughts what he's saying it's not that just uh, suddenly some thought came he's saying and again some thought came he's saying all this thought there's a continuation yeah the wonderful thing is saying after that what he's saying that master now says yes sir that is true sir then ramakrishna again what he says interesting there are two classes of yogis the bahudakas and the kutichakas the bahudakas roam about visiting various holy places and have not yet found peace of mind but the kutichakas having visited all the sacred places have quieted their minds feeling serene and peaceful they settle down in one place and no longer move about in that one place they are happy they don't feel the need of going to any sacred place if one of them ever visits a place of pilgrimage it is only for the purpose of new inspiration after speaking that you have to complete a path that all the paths are true but whatever you adopt you should dive deep and complete after that he is speaking of this two types of yogis bahudaka and kutichaka bahudaka udaka means water bahu means many means one who have drank the waters of all the holy places is bahudaka as as he was visiting from various one pilgrimage to another pilgrimage constantly is doing that so it may appear that he is a very holy person but what he is doing actually not diving deep he's just keeping himself engaged in the modern days the bahudakas example we find everywhere in each and every home among the students they are the curiosity mongers they are like the one who is browsing the internet without focusing on anything just browsing while not seeing anything in uh, in uh, entirety not getting get gathering any knowledge from anything just browsing just seeing a little and immediately they browse go to the and that's how they waste their time the curiosity mongers without gaining any longer knowledge that is the bahudakas so as if they are attempting tit by tit not going diving deep as i said you can link with the previous discussion these bahudakas are like that that they are yet to settle down their mind as they cannot settle down their mind just sitting in one place they cannot settle down their mind they run away from themselves by just simply moving around from tirtha to tirtha thinking i am doing some holy act but it is actually they don't realize their mind is making them dance just moving around but one who has settled down a bit then they become kutichaka now the practice they just adopt they will dive deep will then will they not move around they may also move but for them this last time is important if one of them ever visits a place of pilgrimage it is only for the purpose of new inspiration just the browsing has to in our present modern let us take the example of this browsing of computer one is aimlessly browsing and another has started doing some research he has some goal in mind he has some objective in mind he also browses that to have a full knowledge that certain aspect by browsing certain aspect he gets from certain website or for certain blogs and he browses to get the knowledge from some another aspect of that same uh, idea on which he is researching to get the entire knowledge 
So here also he says, uh, this, uh, uh, Ramakrishna is speaking the same thing, that if he ever feels like going to the other pilgrimage, it is not just for keeping himself engaged in some activities. As, the, as we cannot sit quietly, I'm keeping myself engaged by roaming about. As he has started progressing spiritually, his mind becomes extremely sensitive. He finds that when he visits a Tirtha, he finds the living presence of the divine. And that gives a new inspiration. He finds that his meditation is becoming more intense. So he is not just simply moving around. It is diving deep, though he may visit now and then one or two places. Most of the time he prefers to be in one place. But whenever he's going, it is not just for like a curiosity mongering or just like the one who is browsing the computer without any aim. He has already gathered some devotion and he finds that devotion intensifies when he is in the living presence of the divine. That place which is vibrating with spirituality, which the place whose spirituality has been enriched by the life led by so many spiritual predecessors in the past. Tirthi Kurvanti, this Tirthi, uh, this, tirthi Kurvanti Sadhava that a place by itself never becomes holy. The sadhakas, through their sadhana, they make the place holy. The holy vibrations are there. And he goes there and he palpably feels the vibration and he, he feels that actually helps him to still dive deep into his spiritual journey. So he is the one, he's just not roaming about for passing his time by keeping his mind engaged in just roaming, but he's having the purpose of new inspiration. So that's the idea which Sri Ramakrishna is giving. So again, we read these lines. It's very important. He says there's a wonderful link that after saying that he has practiced many paths. So it may be like those Bahudakas that today they are going to some Vaishnava uh, uh, tradition, uh, Tirtha tomorrow to some uh, Shaiva tradition, Tirtha. And we may think, oh, they are also practicing many paths. But that's in no way being indicated by the words of Ramakrishna. That you have whatever path you are practicing, dive deep. And, and even if you have to just go to one or two places, it is for the mere inspiration that you have already developed some devotion and you find that devotion is enkindled by going to some place. For that, it's okay. For the purpose of new inspiration. Then that will help you to dive deep through one path and go to the realization. After that, you may go to another place. As Sri Ramakrishna's, there are innumerable stories. Sometimes the stories that we take literally and we don't understand the inner meaning. That one sadhu was just simply roaming about a city. Another sadhu saw him and asked, Are you are just roaming about? Where are your belongings? You uh, that you are just roaming freely. I don't see you have, uh, your bag and baggage. Where are the belongings? And he told, when I came to this place, first I searched a house where I kept my belongings and I locked it. And now I am moving around and free. What it speaks of, again, the same thing. Once you have went to the realization, your realization is as if locked in the chest, in the, uh, what you say, in the core of your heart. Now you are free, whatever you may do. Nothing can take away your conviction. You have been established in the spiritual truth. Nothing can disturb you anymore. You may resort to some other practice or you may simply roam about because your conviction has been locked in your heart. Nothing can take it away. That's, that's the idea that I have kept my treasures and locked it. That what means no one can steal it away. It is there. Now I can roam about. So you have to lock your realization within you so that through realization, only you can get established in your conviction. So that's something like getting locked. And now no one can take away your treasures. You move around. So, so in so many ways, Sri Ramakrishna is indicating this idea to dive deep, go to the realization. Then you may think of going to the other path. That's when Sri Ramakrishna has practiced many paths. It was not that. He was just practicing tidbits. Today, a little of this. Today, tomorrow, a little of that. Whatever he was adopting at that time, he used to forget everything. When he was practicing Islam, he even never visited the Kali temple. So for the three days, he just adopted the Islam, the Muslims way of living, totally forgetting this all other paths. 
diving deep into it, going to the realization, then only he thinks of practicing some other path. So that's the thing which he is again indicating through the examples of the Bahudakas and the Kutichakas. I had to practice each religion for a time. Hinduism, Islam, Christianity. Furthermore, I followed the paths of the Shaktas, Vaishnavas and the Vedantists. I realized that there is only one God toward whom all are traveling. But the paths are different. Paths are different. But ultimately, that is goes to that same realization. Many again object to these words of Ramakrishna. That all the religion speaks of various goals. The idea of heaven in the Abrahamic religion is different from that in Hinduism. And even within the Abrahamic religions, there are so many other varied opinions about the highest ideal attained. How can the goal be the same? Again, we should remember, if you have to understand these words of the Ramakrishna, you have to relate to the mystics of all the religions. It's not just mere belief with which today's discussion we started. Just you're sitting and believing, you're just thinking that you have went to a room which is full of treasure and you're imagining that you have, broke the, bro, you have broken the lock and then you have entered and you have got the treasure. Do you really get the treasure? No. So most of the religions, when they think of the highest ideal, it is just a belief system. There is varied. When you have believed something, you can believe anything. And that's why it's so varied. But the mystics of all the religions, there you go, who were even decried by their own faith. When they went to that realization, their words were not conforming to the big belief system, to the doctrines and dogmas. They, they termed this, branded them as heretics. But their realization, if you study, that study the mysticism of all the religions, there they're speaking the same language. In the words of Ramakrishna, Shekhane, Shop Shealer, Akra, all the fox howls in the same manner when they reach that realization. In the forest, when one fox howls, all other immediately will be howling as if responding to that. So that's what he says, all the fox howls in the same manner. A word of the mystic you will find is conforming, whether it's a Christian mystic or it is a Sufi who are the mystics in this Islam tradition or any tradition. That way this, if you go to that realization, that realization takes you to some unitary experience, whether it's in the Jewish tradition, Christian tradition, Islam tradition, or it may be in the Hindu tradition, whatever may be the tradition. There, the mystic, the, those who have realized something, they all speak the same language. That's why Sri Ramakrishna is saying that I realized that there's only one God toward whom all are traveling. The paths are different, but it takes to that same realization. This all paths are like that as that example which we were giving previously that, that we are as if digging a hole in the wall of ego. In the words of Ramakrishna in some different context he has mentioned that all the paths are like a hole dug in the wall of the ego through which we are peeping into the same eternity. While visiting the holy places I would sometimes suffer great agony. Once I went with Mathur to Raja Babu's drawing room in Benares, I found that they talked there only of worldly matters, money, real estate, and the like. At this, I burst into tears. I said to the Divine Mother, weeping, Mother, where hast thou brought me? I was much better off at Dakshineshwar. In Allahabad, I noticed the same things that I saw elsewhere, the same ponds, the same grass, the same trees, the same tamarind leaves. Before we go to the Tirtha, we think that everything will be something different. And then I find it's all the same. As I still remember, uh, when in our school days, we used to solve some mathematics and the, uh, just on the, uh, on the side of the, uh, this question, the mathematical problem, uh, it was written that it's the question which, uh, uh, which was from the uh, Cambridge University or H Harvard University. And immediately the student will feel, oh, it must be very difficult. And still I remember the teacher used to say, even in Harvard and in the Cambridge, the same grass grows. Don't think it is something different. So that's the word he's saying that the Tirthas is the same land. It's only our endeavor that has made it as Tirtha. By itself, it is nothing. It's the same ponds, the same grass, the same trees, the same tamarind leaves. It is our spiritual endeavor, the sadhakas that have made those places place holy. 
the place by itself is not holy. And when we are visiting the Tirtha, remember that it is a matter of great pain when someone else is having some worldly discussion. In our scriptures, they say that there's a notion that in a spiritual, in a pilgrimage, when you're going for a pilgrimage, in, a, in, the, in the place of the, uh, in that holy place, if you do something holy, the results are, the results which you accrue is tenfolds. And if you do something unholy, the negative results is also tenfolds. Because that atmosphere has been created. It's just like, uh, you know, that um, uh, when you are driving, just take an example, that the zone is very important. That the, suddenly you find it's mentioned that you were driving at a road of, at the speed of 80 kilometers per hour, and suddenly you find school zone. So now if you drive at 80 kilometers per hour, so you will be heavily fined as a school zone. So the pilgrimages are like that. So all your worldly activities, which is quite okay when you are at, uh, at your uh, home, you are just uh, busy with your worldly activities. They, they are not accruing any good result, but they won't accrue any evil results also. But the same thing when you're doing in the place of pilgrimage, it is going to accrue evil results because you are damaging the place. Just the way you are challenging the security of the school children when you are driving fast. Similarly, the, all the spiritual merits, the vibration that has been created in the holy place by ages together, by so many sadhakas, you just by your unholy third, you're damaging that, you're destroying that, you're reducing its efficacy. So that's why your transgression is considered as extremely serious. Ramakrishna is at pain. We find that after coming to the holy place, what are these people doing? Just talking about the worldly matters, money, real estate. For that, what was the need to come to that place? And he was burst into tears. So that's why scriptures say, be very careful that if God is happy, the world is happy. If God is displeased, everything is at uh, what you say that uh, turmoil. When Ramakrishna says he is displeased, know it for certain. It is in no way be of help to anyone. I just in this context, I remember one very nice story. It is having no direct link, but the story is very nice. I just cannot resist uh, mentioning that. That young Swamis in Belumat, Swami Jagadananda, he was a realized soul in the later life. He was considered to be realized one of them. He was highly revered. But when he joined, he was a brahmachari. That time, Holy Mother was still alive. One day, Holy Mother came to Belumat. And when he was going around, when she was going around, she saw in the morning hours, the brahmacharis, the young brahmacharis, the novices who have joined. They were all sitting together. One brahmachari was just reading some holy book. Others were all cutting vegetables, dressing vegetables. Now, in the olden days, you know that uh, the demarcation was strong, that some work is meant for the woman folk, some work is meant for the men folk, even still it's there. This is cutting vegetable is something for the woman. So that's what was the norm in those days. Holy Mother seeing these young boys, brahmacharis, novices, sitting together, someone is reading holy book or all are dressing. She was so happy. She was so happy. She was elated. She was. She just uh, remarked that, "Wow, my boys are cutting so nice, nicely the vegetables." Uh, the moment she said that, this Jagadaran who was a young brahmachari, immediately the, the, he he this chanted this sloka: "At Priyatam Pundarik Pundari Kaakshan Sarva Yagyeshwara Hari Tasmin Tushte Jagat Tushtam Prinite Prinitam Jagat." That mother, our dressing vegetable is successful, is very, is highly effective. Why? We are, it's a, it's a, it's a great act. Why? That the, when the, when any spiritual aspirant is meditating, what's the idea? That God will be pleased with him. That's the idea that through meditation, I please God. I gradually get rid of this world. I become more uh, attuned to the divine. I please the divine. So to please the divine, 
I do all the spiritual practices. And now the mother seeing me cutting vegetable is happy. She's elated, like a, smiling like a small girl and remarking that, see my boys, how nice. So we have managed to please the divine by cutting vegetable. So our goal is done. Or now what, what's the need for meditation? <clears throat> so that's the idea. Mathur, to, uh, just, uh, to accrue merit, is taking Ramakrishna for Tirtha. And after that, he cannot get rid of the worldly thought. He's thinking of the worldly thought and is inflicting pain in the divine. So that's why we should be very careful that we shouldn't inflict pain to the divine purpose. When we are, if I have to go to the Tirtha, I have to take a resolution, then otherwise what's the need? Better go to some other place of entertainment. Why go to the pilgrimage? If you go to the pilgrimage, go with that strong resolution that there I'm going to forget the world for a few days and just dive deep in my spiritual uh, contemplation. So that's what Sri Ramakrishna is indicating. That after saying that these places are same, he will indicate that as the geography is concerned, as per the demography is concerned, as per it, it, it is as good as any other place, but it is the sadhaka's spiritual endeavor that makes the difference. That he will be speaking again in the next few lines. So that we will again take up in the next class. With this, we stop our discussion today. Thank you all. Namaskars.